Listener Production. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Spies. Welcome to On Her Game. Yana Pittman is someone I deeply admire and respect. A two-time Olympian, two-time world champion and four-time Commonwealth Games gold medalist, she was one of our biggest stars on the athletics track in the 2000s. Yana had big-name sponsors, flew around the world competing, dated a prince and was a household name in Australian sport. But at the time, Yana had a troubled relationship with the media. There was no social media back then for athletes to talk directly to fans and set the record straight. And it meant that she had to endure with gossip, misinformation and the tag of drama Yana, which was cruel and unfair. Despite this, Yana showed incredible strength and determination to continue to achieve on the track and fight back against both headlines and a never-ending battle with injuries. She's also the first Australian woman to compete in both the Summer and Winter Olympics, swapping the athletics track for the bobsleigh track at the Sochi Olympics in 2014. On top of this, she also studied medicine and is now a doctor, as well as a mum to four. One of those world titles I mentioned earlier came just seven months after she gave birth. She's simply incredible, but it definitely hasn't always been easy for Yana. And a story begins growing up as a young kid in Sydney's Borkham Hills. I had a beautiful childhood, Sam. Like I had wonderfully supportive parents, a great brother, um, always very driven as a young person, always wanted to always set myself little goals, you know, when I was growing up to, you know, do well on the maths exam or run fast in a race, mm. that kind of, you know, very basic goal at that stage. Although by the time I was nine, I already wanted to go to the Olympics. So I think, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I really understood what that meant, but um it was, a, it was around then that they announced Sydney had the Olympic Games. I'm like, oh, I want to go to the Olympics. So, cool. Um, but yeah, it was. I had a very beautiful childhood. You talk about um, the Sydney Olympics and when that announcement happened, uh, you were interviewed at your little athletics club <laughs> the next day. What were your memories of that? And was that, you said that was the moment that you knew, okay, well, I want to be involved in this? Yeah, I mean, I, obviously I didn't really understand what it meant, but uh, I thought it was pretty cool. You know, the, the TV cameras rocked up and um, and were sort of interviewing kids about what they thought <laughs> the Olympics was. And, um, yeah, it was it was just a, I vividly remember it because of the the crazy fluffy muff that was on the, on the, on those days on the, on the camera um, or the microphone <laughs> at that point. And um, yeah, it was just, it was, I guess, the beginning and, and really probably the beginning of, of when I actually started uh, aiming for a sports career. All right. So how did you get into running then? Were you always a runner? No. And- <laughs> how did it happen? Just fell, fell into it mainly because... Look, this hasn't, this hasn't changed as an adult, but I really loved spending time with my father and I loved him being mm. proud of me, in all truth. So mm. I remember when at, at school one time I ran fast in a race and you make, you know, you make your standard regional carnival and dad would take a day off work to come down and watch me run. Um, <laughs> and he's a complete workaholic. It's probably where I get my, um, you know, my attitude towards um, work ethic from. And he would, he would even work Christmas Day. So he was an engineer builder and he would literally work the building sites you know, right up until 5 p.m. on Christmas Day, and then come home for dinner. So he was a he was he was an incredible man. But for some reason, if one of the kids, Ryan or I, my brother, made it in a sports carnival, he would take the day off and come and be with us. So, yeah, I guess that was my initial motivation was to literally impress my dad. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and get to spend more time with him. That's really really sweet. That's really really cool. Um, I uh, you've been open in the past and talked about being bullied as a kid. How tough was that for you? How long did that go on and what kind of impact did it have? Well, I think, Sam, the, the hardest part is I, 
so badly wanted to be liked as a kid. So again, I think it comes back to the fact that we didn't have a very big social network. So it was very much just family and cousins and things. And um, and I think every kid grows up, well, not every kid, but a lot of kids grow up wanting to be, you know, wanting to have mates and wanting to be popular at school. So, and I was always a bit quirky. I've never changed. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still very quirky. But when you're young and you speak as fast as I do and you, you're already like a foot taller than everybody else in your class and the dorkiest clothes you can possibly imagine, I was, I was a sitting <laughs> duck in all truth. And, yeah, and, I, and, I, and I'd always fall into the trap where, you know, if, if a kid tries to say, hey, um, let's be mates and, and tricks you into doing something, I'd do it with the hope that they'd like you as a result. So it, it, was, it was, but it makes, it's funny, I talk to a lot of successful people and I think a lot of us went through similar journeys as a young person and it almost is part of the character building exercise, you know, that you learn that self-resilience and you learn to inwardly devote yourself to goals rather than it always being an extrin- extrinsic drive. So, you know, in other words, in other, instead of it always looking for people's um, acceptance and accolades, um, you become, you find things that make you happy because you have to. I, um, I've read your book, but there's a section in there that talks about going through that and being bullied. And I just had tears, like my heart. And as a mum as well, my heart just broke for little yeah. Yana having to, to endure that. Have you since bumped into or met your bullies since? Or, you know, now we have social media and have they ever tried to contact you? I've got people from school that try to contact me. I'm like, you did not even want to talk to me at school and now <laughs> so you want to be my friend. So, I was so like, no. But, not the, you know, not- has anything like that happened to you? <laughs> Only a funny one. Um, not the young girls at primary school. And if you've read my book, I know I know what you'll be referring to was these very horrible oh, young right. girls. That, yeah, that was that that was a horrible, horrible moment to go through. And um, and I don't mind sharing it with your, your listeners. It's just that they, they basically made me do very inappropriate things to another young girl um, mm. because they were trying to convince, you know, basically that I could hang out and play with them if I would prepare, prepare to do a dare and the dare was just a really awful dare basically. And mm. it, that definitely haunted me for a long time um, and also made me question my sexuality and all these issues that sort of came out of that as a young person. Long Going forward long term, I, ended up, I had this other guy at school who used to completely pick on me at high school and, like, he was so mean to me, like, called me in, called, I was very flat-chested, didn't have any boobs, you know, called me infected mosquito bites and yeah, hmm. he, was, he, was, he was not a nice little guy. Um, and then I was about 18, I was at a pub and he walked up to me and asked me out for dinner. <laughs> and I was like, you oh. are kidding. <laughs> he was like, oh, mate. Like, I still, you know, I still remember, I'm not going to say it, obviously, but I still remember his name because he was so mean when I was a kid. Yeah. And now, what did you say? Were you like, mate, no? No, I didn't know what to say. I was so shocked because he's quite a popular guy back when I was a kid. So I was looking at him going, yeah. do I want to do that or no? No yeah. way. <laughs> Is it still little Yana yearning for your yeah, acceptance here exactly. that that would make me go down this trail? But yeah, yeah. oh, it's nice. Well, I think <laughs> you've definitely had the last laugh on those bullies um, since. But um, I want to go back to the 2000 Olympics because, you know, y- you were so excited about about that. Yep. You were talented, <laughs> so incredibly talented at running. Um, and your original aim for the 2000 Olympics was to be the kid holding the basket. That's right. That was your aim, it, wasn't it? Oh, yes. So I was so excited. So basically what happens is at every major Olympics, you obviously take your clothes off at the start of the race. It's in your tracks that you're mm-hmm. just left in your racing kit. And someone, some lucky kid gets to hold the basket behind that athlete. And I was dying <laughs> to hold Kathy Freeman's, as you can imagine. <laughs> like yes. I just so badly wanted to stand behind her <laughs> and catch her clothes. And so therefore she'd have to talk to you at the end when she collected them. But um, but yeah, so all of a sudden, yeah, I, I, I remember the time when I got accepted to be the basket carrier, but they told me that I couldn't. 
So that I had to be the person obviously competing. So, <laughs> so how did that spot. come about? Because you were so young at the time. How did it come out that you would qualify for the Olympics? Uh, it was a, it was a complete fluke, Sam. So I was at a, I was at a race. I'm like I was running fast. Don't get me wrong. I was winning most of the the races mm. for my age group. Um, mm-hmm. But there was this one race in Sydney of all places where I where I lived and trained every day. So it was like a home track. And I ran a time that that qualified me initially for the relay for the four by four relay, and it was you know national record and and whatnot. And um and they sort of said, look, just this a is national re- record, yeah, <laughs> just yeah. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, and they said they they said to me, look, this is this is the real deal. You're you're now top four in the in the women's four by four, so very high chance that you're going to to make the four by four relay. And to me again, I was like, yeah, I'm running running with Kathy Freeman. This is extraordinary. <laughs> And yeah, and then a couple of months later, I qualified in the individual 400 hurdles as well. So um, it was it was a little bit yeah, a little bit surreal. And you know, I was 16 at the time to think you know I was like, oh, how am I going to manage my HSC and how am I going to manage <laughs> you know life in general and training? And but yeah, it was a dream come true. Can you just give us an idea as well, just about the 400 meters hurdles? Don't they say that 400 meter sprint is like the hardest? Uh, like race of all in a way because you like physiologically like you don't get into your aerobic stage you stay in your exactly. anaerobic am I right here That's I'm talking 100%. to the doctor what am I doing yeah. um, 100%. but you throw in hurdles on top of that that is a cruel race it is a cruel race it's probably why I picked it and defined who I was as, a, as an adult as well but uh, for those who don't run and maybe do swimming apparently it's like the 200 meter butterfly so the, the two events are the hardest on, on, you know, on the athletic planet. Mm. And, uh, it, but it, it also lends to a certain personality. So not everyone's prepared to run the 400 hurdles, which is why I think I decided I'd give it a crack because I knew that there was more opportunities in that race to be the best in the world. Mm. You were also um, in that four by 400 metre relay team for a number of years. You, in 2000, you were only 17 and then you had the heats. Um, you competed in the heats and then there were bigger guns yeah. <laughs> going on to the final, as always happens. That's right. um, but and you also just missed out on the final um, in your individual in the semi-final for your individual event. But you know, you talk about Kathy Freeman. Uh, there was an incident that you talked about where you had the chance to run against Kathy Freeman for the first time. And at the last minute, you I did. Out. I did. And I use, look, I use this moment when I talk to a lot of young kids um, at school events and actually even with some of the women's breakfasts I do because it sets the idea that everyone's afraid. You know, there is no one in the world that ha- can, can honestly say that they aren't afraid of something in life or, or afraid of failure, which was my biggest one. And I was so, I was so excited to race against her in Adelaide at, at this race and be, you know, to, to, to run against your hero is, is, you know, the best thing on the planet. And, but my mind, that little sort of uh, negative voice in your head got involved and sort of said, you can't do this. You're going to look like an idiot. And yeah, before I knew it, I was having a sore hamstring, which I did not have, just to put it out there. <laughs> I was, I mean, I had a slight niggle, but I was like, it became a, 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 you know, a mountain I couldn't get over. Um, and I withdrew from the race. And literally, at, literally while you're waiting in the waiting room for the race. Yeah. In the waiting room. In yeah. the waiting room. So um, for those who maybe don't follow athletics, you basically, just like at school, you have, a, you go to your call room, they check your numbers off. And at a, at, an, at a high level athletics event, you wait about up to 45 minutes before you go on the track. Mm. It's a lot of time to sit with your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> with Kathy Freeman. With Kathy Freeman. So was her aura. <laughs> but this is like Kathy Freeman's aura was something, right? Was. Her presence was something. Her presence was extraordinary. And I just, I don't know. It was one of those moments where I took myself out of it. But as I said, I, I think it's a fantastic message because I'll never do it again. And for the rest of my life, I drew on that moment and how incredibly bad I felt afterwards for 
failing because I didn't even give it a shot rather than actually going out there coming dead last by, you know, 20, 30 metres, but then being able to be proud of the, the the chance that I'd given myself or at least giving it your best. And I do believe that part of the your drive and resilience is innate. Uh, you know, you're born with it. But I think the rest of it comes about through life experience. And you need little experiences like that. And I, it's funny because I even encourage a lot of coaches, if they've got an athlete that's particularly nervous and not a great racer, to actually make them forcefully withdraw from an event that they really want to run because from evermore, wow. yeah, well, I just think it's a good tactic. It works really well. Mm. It's worked a few times for a few friends of mine because then they, they feel the pain of not doing it. So instead mm. of that voice going, you can't, you can't, you can't, you don't want to be here, this is awful, I, I can't handle this, um, they go in with, well, I've got a choice. I can sit back and, and miss out or I can be a part of it. And it applies to everything, any sport, any job interview, any exam you sit you know, we, we always have choices to do the tough things and it's, and sometimes your, your mind might break, but hopefully that just becomes a lesson for the next time not to. I love that. I absolutely love that. And then she went on, this great woman to be your teammate. I want to get to that. Yeah. I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that in 2002, which was such an amazing year for you. But you finished the games and you mentioned before you still had your HSC to do. Academia was so important in your family and was still really important to you, wasn't it? despite this incredible Olympian at 17? <laughs> it's because I always wanted to be a doctor, right, from, from, from when I was a child. I know I'm skipping way ahead there, but it's just it's always something that I've wanted to do. So, and, and my parents also made very strong rules around they were not the sideline yelling at your kid parents. They were very much, do we really need to go to training today because you've got an assignment due tomorrow? And I'm like, Mum, I wow. have to train. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so they basically set pretty strong ground rules that if your work wasn't done, then you didn't get to go to sport that day. Um, and it kind right. of was the same with exams. If you failed an exam, then you um, then you missed out competing that weekend. So I would not let that happen. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Um, and what kind of hours were you competing leading into those games, as well as doing your HSC, which you got ninety three point two five or whatever in? <laughs> yeah, look, it was it was it was tough um, trying to balance it all. And again, had another big probably big hit on your social life because you just got to make priorities. And you know, I would study in the car with a torch going home from training. So I trained all the way at Narrabeen. This was about 45 minutes from home. Um, so mm. mum, would, mum would, beautiful mother, would drive. Mm. Imagine that, having to drive your kid every day to training because <laughs> they can't drive themselves. Um, yeah, so she would literally get in the car and drive while I would not even talk to her, sit there and study my textbooks with a torch on the way home and eat your lunch, you know, eat your dinner in the car um, and, wow. then, and then get home, do a few more hours and go to bed and get up at 4.30 and go training before school and then, you know, to school, study on my lunch breaks even, especially year 11 and 12. I didn't even stop for lunch. I'd basically just do my homework at lunchtime to make sure I'd be allowed to train in the afternoon. So to be allowed to train. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I don't regret it. Like I, I definitely regret not having as much a childhood. Like I would have, I would have liked to have had more time with my friends. But then in saying that, those friends are still there now and they're still we still hang out with the kids and and they and that's where I was lucky that I had that support as I got older. Mm. Yeah, I thought you were my mum goals, but I think your mum's my mum goals. My mum's um, amazing. As well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's extraordinary. <laughs> On the way to getting to 2002 Manchester Com Games, I want to just take a, a quick little interlude to say you dated the Prince of Monaco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just briefly. Right. <laughs> How did this come about? Because I'd done quite well in the 2000 year because I won the world, I won the, went to the Olympics, as you've talked about, and then I won double gold at the World Junior Championships in Chile. Mm-hmm. So I got what's called Rising Athlete of the Year Award and they took me over to Monaco to hand it to you. So you met up with all, like, I'm talking, Sam, the greatest international track athletes of the era. So it would be the equivalent of the Usain Bolts of today. All and sitting who was in this that? room. Like Angelo Taylor, Dion Hemmings. Um, like it, the room was chockers with people. Mm. Kathy Freeman was there. Big names. Big, massive names. Yep. You know, Sebastian Coe was in the room. Like it was just a, it was a 
extraordinary, extraordinary experience. Mm. And I remember I've got photos of them all, which is great. Anyway, we went to a nightclub <laughs> afterwards and I'd just turned 18. So I thought I was pretty cool, you know, <laughs> like literally 18 and two weeks old. <laughs> yeah. And we were at this nightclub, but of course I'm penniless because who has any money at that point? And it's in Monaco. And you're in Monaco. Exactly. Yeah. Where the wine's $250 a glass. So I'd Ouch. sneak off to the bathroom and like drink from the tap and then come back. Yeah. And anyway, <laughs> there was this lovely American guy who just came up and offered to buy me a wine. And I'm like, sweet, my first real wine. Yeah. Um, and then we just danced for a while. Everyone was kind of staring at us, but I had absolutely zero idea who this guy was. And it wasn't actually, he said, well, can we, do you want to come out for dinner with me tomorrow night? I said, and he said, he'll show me around Monaco. And I said, fantastic. You know, this is a great opportunity um, to, go, to see this beautiful place. Yeah. And it wasn't until oh, the next the next day, some one of his um, secretaries or one, someone who he works with, assistant, I think it was, dropped off a message to my room and basically said, oh, um, the prince will meet you for at such and such a time at five o'clock. And I'm like, you're going to be kidding me. And I what? literally, like I, I fainted. I was like, oh my God. So, and then I rang my mum and I said, I don't know if I'm being, I don't know if this is a, a joke. <laughs> Am I being wow. set up for some stupid television show? But um, yeah. No, yeah, it was, yeah. And look, he's such a gentleman too. I had a fantastic time. Um, and we stayed, yeah. in, we stayed in touch for quite a few, for quite a few years just on and off. But yeah, he was, he was such a, he was such a gentleman, which I, yeah, I was really, it's, it was a really, a really special couple of, couple of, couple of days with him in Monaco. And then obviously for the years afterwards, he's an avid sports fan. You've got to remember Sam. So he loves, yeah, absolutely loves sport. And then funnily oh. enough, he was a bobsledder. So, you know, years later, obviously oh, wow. I ended up in his sport. <laughs> Which is wow, funny. which you yeah. wouldn't have had any idea at the no, time. No, exactly. As well. Yeah. Um, he also, that's very, very cool. I love that story. Um, how did it come to an end? What happened? Oh, no, you've read you my book, you? kept in you? touch for a while. That's <laughs> <laughs> no. oh, that's embarrassing. Yeah, I forgot that bit. Um, so, yeah, it was actually, I felt terrible, to be honest, because would, we would text and talk a couple of times, you know, a couple, you know every every couple of days. Um, and then one time I actually dropped, which is very stupid, I didn't write the number down, but I actually dropped my my phone. This is back in the days when it was a brick, remember, and you don't yeah. really have the same. Anyway, instant, yeah. I dropped And you my, couldn't back them up. You couldn't back them up on the computer. No. No, exactly. So my phone, I dropped it in the toilet of all places and, uh, and fried it. And I, so I did not have his number. And I tried so hard to get through to his, you know, his secretary. I sent emails. I tried to call and it wasn't email. I think it was a long a snail letter back then. But oh, um, yeah, and I, and I tried to call through, through the palace and whatnot. And I got shut down like there was no tomorrow. But I love it because you ghosted the prince. Yeah, he would be like, well, she's just ghosting me. <laughs> It's so funny. Yeah, and I got a big, massive bunch of flowers from him a few years, actually after the Commonwealth Games in 2002 because I hadn't spoken to him for six months, just saying, lovingly yours, Albert. And I'm like, I still can't get a hold of him. So, yeah, and then it's funny. Oh, cool. Yeah, 10 years later I did text him and say, this is what happened, I'm so sorry, and he never responded. So by then he obviously (laughs) had enough of me. Oh, I love that story. I think that's beautiful. From there, 2002 Commonwealth Games, you became the 400-metre hurdles gold medalist. Um, And then I think a big race as well was that 4 by 400 metre relay with some incredible names there, Yana. You've got in that team Lauren Hewitt, Kathy Freeman, who you were too scared because of her aura to even compete (laughs) against a few years prior. And there you are alongside her in the team as a teammate, Tamsin Lewis. That's right. as well, and then and then yourself, were, you were the last one, and you you brought home the gold. That uh, you 
that's a meaningful one, wasn't it? That was a big win for you. Massively. And as you say, those girls are superstars in our sport and I was quite a few years younger than them. Um, so to have been able to run in a relay with that kind of class was pretty amazing. And to anchor the relay, um, I mean, that's the greatest honour as a 400 runner to be able to actually bring the relay home. So basically, you know, especially with Kathy Freeman in the race where they could have very easily said it's your probably one of your last races and given her that honour, um, it was massive. So, and, uh, and, you know, everyone took it so beautifully and, it, yeah, it was a very proud moment. Uh, 2003 world champ after that, no mean feat as well. Um, and you're still quite young. Things were looking so good heading into Athens and your second Olympics was looking really, really good. You were the favourite. Lots of media were interested in your story. Um, and then you had the first of many significant, well, probably not the first in your career, but probably the most significant, would it be, injury? And you've had quite a few in your career. Can you explain to us what happened? That was, I mean, that was the start, almost the start of the well, everything, to be honest, a lot of the media stuff, a lot of the injury components and, and some of the self-doubt kicking in as well was around that time because up until then, Sam, I'd pretty much had a, well, actually almost injury-free preparation. So I had a little bit of an injury leading into into the, you know, Commonwealth Games, into, oh no, actually 2001, the world chance, but, you know, insignificant really, as you said. So leading into this one, I'd been reigning world champion. I hadn't lost a race in months and months and months. So it was I was an odds-on favourite to win. And and in, it's funny because I know Phil and I had trained so hard for the Phil King's my coach. He was Debbie Flintoff mm-hmm. King's husband. Mm-hmm. And we we just we just assumed it would happen. Like, you know, we'd put so much effort in mm. and I was so much faster than the other competitors at that stage that we would we should have held back. But we just kept pushing and pushing and starting to look at that world record. And it's funny because it, sport is such a fine line. It's a, you're, you're walking a tightrope between injury and perfection. And and it's, and sometimes I think an Olympic year, and it's a message I try to talk to young athletes about too, is the year to focus on the actual winning the gold medal, and anything else that comes with it is a is the bonus. But I guess mm. you're also in the, if you're in the shape of your life, you want to go after something that's forever, isn't it? A, a world mm. record. So it's yeah. So basically, we're in great shape, and I was in a beautiful place called Zurich, one of my favorite places to race in the world. And I just popped my my knee, so it's a in, I popped my lateral meniscus, which is a bit of cartilage in the in your knee that helps sort of from a suspension perspective. And it just it it ripped to bits, and that was um was devastating because, you know, mm. we didn't even think we'd make it to the start line. And thankfully I did have an operation over in London and it worked and I, I did end up getting to Athens. Which and, is radical at the time. That's oh, really, huge, yeah. Quite radical. Absolutely, yeah. because many other, we saw two surgeons and they both said, don't do it. It's gonna. It's very possible you'll end up ruining your whole athletics career and you'll never run again. Um, it's wow. the, the injury you've done is too big. But this guy was a young, young surgeon, Dr. Haddad, and he basically said, give it a crack. What have you got to lose? You're in great shape in the Olympics of three, mm. two and a half weeks away. You know, and, I, and we just, we made a calculated decision of, you know, let's give it a crack. So I did had the surgery. I was back running within a week and a half, still a lot of pain, but definitely able to run. And I can confidently say I've never had problems with that knee again. So wow, it, it, it certainly was the right surgery. And he's become now a, a superstar orthopedic surgeon, which um, makes sense. So during this time, there's almost like two stories going on. You focusing on, okay, getting this radical surgery that no one's really heard or know <laughs> much of that can get me up and racing at the Olympics and you made it into the final in a week, but also the media storm yeah. that was going on. Was that when the media turned on you? Was that when things started to change? Yeah, I think I think there's a couple of bits there. Firstly, I was sponsored by Channel 9 and the rights to the Olympics were Channel 7. So 9 would say, you have to, you're contracted to us. Yeah, and then 7 would run a story too. And let's be honest, too much media is never a good thing. <laughs> I know they say, you know, when you, it doesn't matter if it's good media or bad media as long as you're out there. It's so not true, <laughs> as you know. Yeah. 
Probably in the era that you were in. No, exactly. So you, you couldn't also have your own opinion. You couldn't um, rectify anything that was misprinted. My parents mm. were already in Athens w- waiting for me to race. So I had no one in the ground in Australia saying, Pittman, there is too much happening over here. It's being completely over-dramatised. Stop doing any. Because had we had that message, we would have just shut up shop and done nothing. So what we were trying to do was show how you can go against the odds and beat them. So we thought yeah. the general message would go, this is an impossible situation, but bugger it, we're Australian. We're going to do, no, matter, no one's going to tell us we can't. We're going to get up and rise above this and try and do our best. So I only saw, there was no part of me that saw that as being able to be taken negatively. So, um, and I'd never had negative press before either. So I wasn't on the defense. I was open and honest and just literally spoke off, you know, off the my, oh, very much my heart on my sleeve sort of scenario. Uh, whereas I've learned, I've learned very much that that is not always the right thing to do, that you do need to be, I mean, I, I thoroughly believe in authenticity, and which I think is very obvious, but I do believe there's a time and a place where you sometimes just need to not, to not say something and let your performance do the talking. Mm. I think it was the climate that you were in as well. It was cruel. The only yeah. way information could get out, the only way, like how you were perceived, your profile, everything. I mean, the mainstream media were the gatekeepers of that, right? So they could edit anything down. They could put any headline you were, they wanted. They could portray you as any person they wanted. And that was the only way you could speak to the public back then. Coupled with the fact that you were overseas and didn't know what was going on. And that was when the drama Yana tag came, which I freaking hate <laughs> I don't so much. But that, that became part of it, didn't it? Like they were like more drama from Yana. Exactly. And, and, and you hit the nail on the head on a few things there. The fact, I think I would have actually loved social media to be back then because a lot of people say, oh gosh, you must have hated it. No, no, I would have been, because I would have been able to talk directly to the people who are supporting me and, and explain yep. my side or even apologise if I said something incorrectly to be able to actually say, hey guys, oh gosh, I was an idiot for saying that yeah. and, and have that direct contact. And even to this day, even with the SAS stuff I'm doing now, I try really hard to write back to everyone who writes to me, which is taking a long time. <laughs> um, yeah, <thank> <laughs> but it's, mm-hmm. it's something I've, since Peter Sterling signed an autograph for me when he was having dinner and I was a kid, I've always said that I would do the same. So um, I would have loved that opportunity during the Olympics to add which would be able to tell my side of it as mm. well. And secondly, it still comes back to as a young kid wanting to be liked. And I thought the more media did and around a positive story about overcoming barriers and pain and being resilient would be seen as a positive. Whereas we are Should a very, be. yeah, but we're a very different group now. We, we now are happy to watch to see someone cry on television. We're happy to see the authentic side. We're happy to resonate with realness, success, powerful women, but also vulnerable women's allowed, like you're allowed to be all mm. those things where in the past, I think people were a little bit afraid of people that were like that. So yep. it's a very different world now. And I think that's one thing reading your book and going back over the articles, the one thing that I just thought the whole time was like, this wouldn't be, this wouldn't happen now because now we celebrate people and women for being passionate, for being open, for being authentic, for wearing their hearts on their sleeve. And like you said, for being vulnerable, but all those things, they were the things that undid you in the in the public's eye. You call it a bit of a, a critical error in you had your crutches outside hospital and you threw them off. <laughs> yeah. you know, that would have been so celebrated now. Editors would have gone, that's our pick. That's our girl. I love it. She gives us what she, what we need. That's that's oh, our headline. It's funny, think, isn't it? Yeah, but it was the opposite for you. Back then, like, yeah, it was the opposite. Yeah. And then it's funny because that's the, that's the post. That's actually the article that got my name linked with Dramayana, that exact that exact moment. And it's funny. And I always said to my mum, why don't you just call me Emily or something that didn't rhyme with anything? <laughs> like, they would have found something. <laughs> hey, <laughs> like they would have found. And I love I say, that I'm part of the media, but yeah, yeah, 
yeah, there are horrible things happened in the past, but I just keep thinking that is what editors want these days. And we're okay with women being successful. Yeah. And we're okay with women being confident. And I but think Sam, maybe it was the media back then. They didn't like confident. I think so. As well. But I also think people like myself and Liesl Jones and Patria Thomas, who were all at some point or other in our career, attacked or had negative media, I think we hopefully, I have to believe that we paved the way for the women going through now because because I also, it was, a, it was a double-sided coin. So sometimes I get people who were really, really quite upset with me and didn't like me and very strongly voiced how much they didn't like the way I behaved in the media. And on the flip side of it, I'd have people saying, yeah, but I don't believe what the media says or I, I don't understand why they're doing that. So hopefully those conversations spurred media on to change the way that they talk about athletes and yeah. to see the impact that negative press can have on someone mentally and physically because it definitely impacted parts of my career. You know, I am a very gentle person by nature and, you know, I tried really hard not to read a lot of it, but there were definitely points where I looked myself in the mirror and said, what is wrong with you that people would write that? You must, there must be some Mm. truth to what they say. And that's hard when you're in your early twenties and you're already, you're already a weird looking person. I'm six foot tall, you know, 70 odd kilo woman. (laughs) I was always a bit like, "Mm." There's a bit something a bit weird about you. So See, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that at all. I don't even think there's anything weird about you at all. No, I don't. All the not way anymore. That you look, but not anymore. Yeah, but as a young person, you worry about that. You know, like yeah, hundred. And in your early twenties, you're yeah, still insecure. That's Everyone right. is. Yeah, exactly. I can't so. imagine then having a profile that you can't control in any yeah. way. Now I love being Would a big feel. woman. I mean, look at, at SAS. It was a, it was why I'm the last woman left because I'm like <laughs> I'm a I'm a unit. I'm basically a guy with boobs, so it's great. <laughs> and you're more than that. You're you're mentally strong as well. Yeah. Which on SAS, we'll get to that. You definitely need that in that Olympics at Athens Games. You ran fifth in the final a week after surgery. I know like fifth is a difficult position when you're the world champion, you're expected, but given everything you went through and you had surgery the week before, can you reflect on that in a positive light now? Absolutely. I, I can't, and certainly more even, even more so now that I'm a doctor and realise the, you know, the, 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 what happened at that point and, and how the body recovered, even just recovering from the anaesthetic and things like that is a big deal when you're competing at an Olympic level. Like we're not talking about state champs here, you know, we're talking at the, the greatest event in the world. Um, but of course, at the time I couldn't see any, it took me 10 years to feel happy about that, Sam. So, and to celebrate that moment. But that, that's what made me a good athlete too, to, to be able to be disappointed with a final position, a finalist position was, be, was what drove me to then do better in championships the years after. So, you know, yes, looking back on it now, I'm very grateful for that opportunity. Don't get me wrong, I'd still give my right arm to have a gold medal at the Olympics, <laughs> um, <laughs> give all my medals back for that. But, you know, I think that experience definitely defined um, the way I thought about things and about medicine and sport and, and life going forward. When you came home and you went through the ticker tape parade. Yeah, that was awful. It was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The ticker- and that just shows you the impact of, Media. of some of the, what was written. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's- uh, explain to us one character in particular. Yeah, that, that was um, that was probably one of the hardest things of my career as an athlete because I, I obviously I didn't even know the media extent at that point because we just mm. got off a plane from Athens and so I had no idea how much media I had. So basically what happens after every Olympics, for those who haven't seen it, you walk down the main streets of Sydney or Melbourne or whatever state you're in um, and they have people, you know, holding beautiful gold, red, green and gold ribbons and Australian flags and celebrating their, their amazing athletes that have gone and competed for them. And majority of people were great. They were really positive and friendly and um, but there was this one particular guy who basically came up and spat and basically said I was a disgrace to the country. And, you know, spat at you. yeah, he did. And, you know, I, I still, 
this is the kind of person I am, I still look back on that and think what was going on in his day that he felt that much anger. So mm. there must, for someone to feel that passionate and that upset with the situation, there must have been something for him that created that moment for him. Um, but it was very heartbreaking for me. Oh, that would have been crushing. You just represented your country and you did amazing things. And then to have someone do that. Yeah. yeah. And, you, and it's more not understanding why. And that's why I guess you try to, to try to, you, you have to try and find your own why, which is why that I look and I think, well, perhaps there was something going on in his life that created that for him. But yeah, yeah. you know, you, it, that was, I guess, the start of, it's the start of when I started fearing what people, the, the judgment or fearing what people thought of you. Like in, try, in, in, a, in terms of, you start you start questioning conversations or, or or second guessing what you're saying. So, whereas up until that point, I've been very, as I said, I've been very open open with what I was saying and and um and very honest and trying really so hard guarded. to let. Yeah, that's the perfect word. It, I, that was the start mm. of me becoming a bit more guarded. Mm. I want to talk as well because um, when I reflect back on your career, just something that really sticks in my mind. Maybe it's been a bit of motivation for me getting in the media and sports media as well. I could never stand the way, and on reflection, even more so, the way the media and everyone pitted it was like a Yana v. Tamsin. Oh, yes. Tamsin huh? Lewis. Yes, that Tamsin makes sense. Tamsin <laughs> And yeah. you two, like, you can, you've known each other since you were 15 and yeah, you competed absolutely. against each other and you were good friends beforehand. I feel like it was almost like we couldn't stand at that time having two successful female athletes that... It was just too much. So we had to pit females against each other. And it was always pitted at Tamsin versus Yana. And you were always the villain in that. Um, and even like on Tamsin, who is an amazing woman, um, was on the front page of one of the um, popular magazines. And she was posing as a, she was a front page. And it had the tagline, it's all right, Tam, we don't like Yana Pittman either. <laughs> and that's on the front page of a magazine. Um, and that was like that narrative. But how difficult was that for you personally, but also because you did have this great, and you do now, friendship, yeah. friendship with Tamsin, but it, it really drove a wedge between you two, didn't it? Oh, 100%. And I mean, I became the villain because I was already a bit, um, a bit had quite Remind. a bit of negative press. Yeah, already in that. Mm. Thank you. That's the right word. Um, whereas T's only ever, I call her T, has only ever <laughs> had good press. So she's mm. a beautiful girl. She's blonde. She speaks beautifully. Got the most amazing smile you've ever seen. But yes, <laughs> you're right. The, the hardest part that came out of that, and we made a mistake, which I'll get to in a minute, but the hardest part that came out of that was our, French, our loss of friendship. And yes, we definitely do talk now, but there was a point in our lives where well, certainly for me, I can only speak from my perspective. She was one of my best friends and I relied so heavily on her from a, from a social perspective because internationally there's very few of us that are good enough to run on the international circuit and Tamsin and I were regularly roommates, regularly together. I spoke on the phone, we spoke on the phone a couple of times a week. We travelled together and, you know, even after I won the World Champs in 2003, um, I spent my time off, my week off with her and Sebastian co-training in England. So I went and stayed with her for a few days and we we did the, you know, the post-race stuff together. And, and then when I hurt my knee really badly in Athens, she was the one who came to my aid in London when I was having the operation and she stayed with me overnight mm. and put the ice on my knee and looked after me. And Because like, we're talking a true bond that we had. Um, and then well, I think there was two mistakes happened. The first one was she's an 800 runner. I'm a 400 hurdler. We'd never really raced each other over 400. So the coming into the, into, I can't even remember what year it was, 2006, I think, the, yeah, Commonwealth Games year, they pitted us against each other because we were meeting over our, over 400 metres. So it was almost the two queens of each event. 
um, were meeting in the same one. And so they wanted to make a big drama out of it um, and make it interesting. And then there was some stupid comment where apparently I called her, I think, a bikini babe or something, and she reacted to that. And the the sad thing about that, Sam, is I never said it and nothing she said Mm. was ever said. So nothing she said and nothing I said was ever actually said. It was ever truly said. It was always, it was a fabrication basically. And the the mistake we made was I should have, I know her well enough, I should have picked up the phone and said, Tamsin or did you say this? And she would have gone, hell no, Jan. And I would have said, I never said that shit either. And then that would have been the end of it. Whereas sadly, we both got a bit offended by each other um, and possibly because we were racing against each other that season and we are natural competitors. We fell apart, like our, our friendship fell apart. And I, oh God, I regret that because I truly adore that woman. And um, and, and I said, the, what I regret is just not fixing it right in the beginning because it did not need to be played out in the media. And other things happened later as well with relays and whatnot. And, and I got on a bit of a high horse and shouldn't have. But um, yeah, I'm so, I was so glad that, you know, probably 2008, I think it was, we sat down or maybe even a little bit later, but we sat down over coffee and finally debriefed and went through it all. And we've been able to resurrect our friendship and, and she, you know, she wrote the foreword for my book, but yeah, it's a shame. Not, I, don't you reckon though? I don't reckon it would be like that these days. I reckon it again. Wouldn't. There is no way on earth it would yeah. happen. Yeah. <laughs> I can thoroughly say there is no way that it would happen. And you know what? Like, is this, We've got different means and as we talk about social media to say, well, hang on, God, like yeah, people exactly. don't do this. What, two women successful and they can't be friends? And like you said, you would have been able to talk more easily, but you also had, you were in different areas of the world as well during that time um, as well. It's difficult to talk, but um, yeah, I, it was yeah. a different era and it wasn't, it wasn't kind. Anyway, I, it's part of the podcast, we always get a bit of a, a memo from someone close to the athletes and I have contacted Tamsin and <laughs> asked her her message um, to you and she's recorded this message to you. Well, the first time we met was back in Perth a very, very long time ago and you were a junior coming into the senior ranks and we were in a breakfast hall of the Mead Hotel. And I think two days later we went to Adelaide and we were in the 400 metres against each other and you were on the track and you had tears streaming down your face. And I thought that's different for a competitor to be so super upset. And I remember speaking to you and you were just so incredibly nervous. And and that's just how you are, Yana. And I learned that that's the endearing part of you. You wear your heart on your sleeve in a good way. You're not afraid to let your emotions out there. And even in the heat of battle of an athletics race, you were re- willing to show your competitors just how nervous you were. You're an incredible person, not only for your athletic feats, but for the way that you are able to put your head down and leave no stone unturned to achieve your goals. But in athletics, it was brilliant to run alongside you, Yana. That 2000 Olympic 4x4 relay, the heat run, oh, wasn't that just incredible moment? Just going through the call rooms together and then being out there with that fabulous crowd and the way that you ran that that third leg was just phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And I think our my favourite race with you would have to be 2002. And I think you'd agree. Like 2002 was... Um, Brilliant. We assembled a team when we didn't have a team and the team that we ended up assembling was Lauren Hewitt, the 200-metre runner who'd medalled in those games. She stepped up and then Catherine Freeman was coming back from having a year off after Sydney Olympics and then you just won the 400-metre hurdles in um, the Commonwealth Games in emphatic 
an emphatic way. So I think the team, um, even though we were told we couldn't win a medal by the high performance coach, we were, we were pretty, pretty confident that we could do something special and it was brilliant what we were able to achieve that day. And the fact that we did it as a quartet was just real privilege for myself to be a part of. Um, Jana, it's been a journey to say the least, um, but you know that I have the utmost respect for you and I'm just so, so proud of everything that you've turned your hand to, especially since athletics. It's, I take my hat off to you. You've got the four beautiful kids and um, you're doing incredibly well in your work life and there's nothing... Nothing more that friends want to see than their friends being happy. And you can see with the smile on your face that you look like you've got to that point in your life. And that's just brilliant. So well done. And can't wait to see how you go in the rest of SAS. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she's gorgeous. (laughs) She's beautiful, isn't she? she She's a great, great, great egg. So, yeah, I've got absolute respect for you both. Um, But, yeah, I thought it was was lovely everything you've said about Tamsin and... I think that's a really beautiful message as well. What were your thoughts when you heard that? I was just, it's, I mean, it's a bit taken aback for words, to be honest. It's lovely. I've always loved Tamsin. So, you know, I, I forgot that moment, but she was right. She actually helped me tie my shoelaces and, <laughs> and wipe away the tears right <laughs> on the start line. <laughs> um, that's quite funny. But, uh, you know, yeah, I think it's a, it's a beautiful, a beautiful tribute and um, I am very grateful that you did that. Thank you. 2006. Again, Commonwealth Games gold medal in the 400 metre hurdles and another gold in the 4 by 400 metre relay in front of that home crowd in Melbourne. Amazing. Then you fall pregnant. (laughs) Back then, not many athletes had babies and still wanted to continue their career. Am I right? Absolutely. It was really hard to find any information on whether it was safe to train in pregnancy. And um, I reached all over the world to, to other athletes to see what, you know, what could be possible. Um, I found an interesting friendship in a lady called Paula Radcliffe, who was the reigning world record holder in the women's marathon, probably the greatest really from my from my era anyway uh, marathon runner there was in, from a woman's perspective. Um, and she happened to be pregnant at the same time as me. So we learned together about what your body could do and the capacity it could to, to return to training after sport, but after, after having a baby. Like now Serena Williams and lots of people have done it, but um, back then it was... Uh, frowned upon almost. I remember a couple of people going, oh, goodness, be careful. You're training a bit too hard. And I'm like, okay. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. yeah. Now you're an obstetrician. Yeah, so, training um, to be, not yet, <laughs> but yes. Yeah. Uh. And then seven months after you had your baby, you won the 2007 World Championships. And I laugh only because that I'm just in awe of that still. How <laughs> on earth? I don't know. I just... How did you even have control of your bladder seven months I after didn't. giving birth? <laughs> um, as a mum, that's incredible. Oh. I would have been happy just to run up the street after seven months having my baby, but yeah. you won the world champs. Are you? How do you reflect on that was, now? Uh, look, I mean, it's funny you say that about the whole wedding yourself thing because it was it was one of the reasons why I openly. Uh, when I wet myself on SAS Australia on national television, um, that I actually admitted it because I the same thing happened after the race in Paris, uh, at the, not Paris, um, Osaka at the World Championships in 2007. As you've just said, seven months later, I would, would could no way control my bladder control over the hurdles, and but I was so mortified about it, I hid it, never told anyone, and it was oh, funny. You wet yourself. 
Terribly. At the World Champs. Absolutely. Coming off the last hurdle. So I knew it was going to happen. So every race that I did that entire season, I would splash an entire bottle of water on my lower lower limb, like lower um, abdomen, just oh. to make sure it looked like I just put water on myself, which wasn't great in the Monaco three weeks before the World Champs when it was cold. And I'm like, oh, no. But it's better oh. than people knowing I'd wet myself. So, um, and, and it was about... Oh, probably mid 20, like 2015 ish time when I did a speaking gig and I admitted it at a women's breakfast for the first time. And I had quite a few women come up afterwards who actually said, Thank you so much for being honest about that because we'd seen you return to sport and we knew your history. And in all truth, it just made us feel like we weren't good enough to get back mm. to sport after our own pregnancies. And I remember thinking, I will never allow that to happen again. So I need, especially now that I work in, in, in women's health, I I need people to know that it's not normal to return to elite sport and running world champs in seven months and SAS after six months and stuff like that. So I thought, okay, if I can't be an advocacy what our, for what our great bodies do in terms of having babies and, and the repercussions potentially of that, um, then people won't talk about it and people won't get help because there's obviously great, great physio and stuff you can do. So yeah, it was extraordinary to come back and win just after having a baby. Um, I did train, as you said, my whole pregnancy. So I was super fit and the pressure was off, Sam. You've got to remember that because you just had a baby, all that that sort of fear of losing, there was nothing there. So you just get out there and you give it a red hot go. And often when you're least expecting it, the performances come. You, um, World Champ 2007, building nicely to Beijing. <laughs> Again. Groundhog Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's my career. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know what? Like it was cruel then by injury just prior to. Same thing happened London. Yep. put out of London just beforehand with injuries. Does that still hurt was the bottom basically saying? Because I know how much you, you love the Olympics and you're building up and you were so close each time, world champs each time. Yeah. Does it still hurt now a little bit? Absolutely. You when you watch the Olympics? Uh, well, I did a lot of commentating for the last couple of Olympics. So I, I try to do, mm-hmm. I try to do at least with sunrise on seven, which is the, you know, the, the in the mornings we get to do sort of a, it's lovely. You get to do like a couple of minutes around it, yeah. around the success and, and beat build up some athletes that have been. But around those times um, when you're involved in the sport, you can definitely feel a bit of an ache towards, the, you know, your lack of performance um, or lack of winning the medal. But, you know, I truly believe it's what's driven me into my new career was because I didn't achieve that goal in athletics. So therefore I was like, right, if I can't get that one, I'm at least going to get the other goal that I had as a kid, which was to become a doctor. So yeah, yeah. It, it does haunt me a little bit, but only in a good way now. You tried your hand at Everything. rowing wanted you, boxing wanted you, <laughs> and then Astrid called and something out of total left field <laughs> happened and you're in the bobsled. Which was great. For the Winter Olympics. Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant because I got to actually go to an Olympics where there was no pressure, again, because we were we were never going to get a medal, um, but to actually be able to stop and smell the roses and really love the Olympic experience uh, yeah. was absolutely out of this world because you're right, my relationship with the Olympics was a bit topsy-turvy because I so badly wanted to do well in athletics and, you know, a baby at the Sydney Olympics and then three Olympics lost with injury. I wanted to change my relationship with that event. So to, mm. to go to a sport, go in a sport, which was one fun. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a bobsledder? It's actually a lot of fun. <laughs> a, bit, a bit scary at times, but also. <laughs> yeah. Probably a lot of people, but yeah, good. but it yeah. is amazing. It, I yeah, love it. It was, it was brilliant. And the second thing is you got to do it as a team. So it was, there wasn't a solo event. And as a, sometimes athletics can be a bit lonely because it's just you and you and your sport alone in terms of the race, obviously huge amounts of people around you to get you to that point with your coaches and physios and psychologists and whatnot. But when it came down to it, it was your performance. And 
if you bugger up, <laughs> it's all on you. So whereas going to going in the bobsled was just wonderful. And especially because Astrid's the main deal. Like, you know, the pilot is always the show of, you know, the queen of the show and their brakeman is fairly interchangeable and fairly replaceable. Um, but it was just, yeah, it was just fantastic. Absolutely brilliant You experience. two knew each other from athletics as well, didn't you? We did. Yeah, she was actually my, yeah. she was my training partner when I was like 16. When, when I used to train with Jackie Burns <laughs> and Melinda Gainsford, Astrid was one of our training partners. It's crazy. Yay. Yeah. And she's a um, vet too. So she's a brain. Oh, is she? Yeah. So it was like the two, hey. ner- two nerds in bobsled. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So what was it like then as you stood? Because we've, we've interviewed, we've actually had um, Ash Werner who's in the bobsled team yeah. um, at the moment, which I know you've spoken to yeah. her team and, and everything. We've had her on the show as well. She was amazing. But she, what was, explain to me what it was like the first time you stood at the top of that track um, and a different track, the bobsled track. Yeah. Looking down, did you have fear or did you just have thrill? Uh, the first time I had just thrill uh, until I went in it and got to the bottom and then had to go again and realise it was hor- horrible and really uncomfortable and really scary. So I think, yeah, the first, the very first run is actually the test of if you're a bobsledder or not because you have no idea what's coming. In. And I remember being up at like the Gold Coast or one of the like, you know, the rides at one of the, the theme parks thinking it's going to feel like this beautiful and smooth and fast and just like an amazing roller coaster. And it's more like a, it's a giant, it's a giant washing machine. You are thrown around from pillar to post and bumps and bruises. And it's 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 actually really uncomfortable, and your tailbone hurts, and you, yeah, yeah, it's not good. And you can't see anything. You're the brakeman, so you can't have to push anything. off and then just tuck in and Correct. hope. And some our, our, yeah, exactly. Our sled had a little slit on the bottom, uh, where you could actually see the ice flying below you underneath your feet, and that's pretty much it. So, um, yeah. So yes, the second time was the first time I loved it, and the second run I was petrified, and we crashed on my second ever run down the hill. <laughs> um, I was going to say, what was it like then to crash the first time? The first time was pretty hairy because you also don't know what's ha- happening, and it's a very it's very noisy. So the, the 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 runners, which are the blades that the sled slides on, are very very rattly. So like, and then all of a sudden, when you crash, it goes, and it's really quiet and peaceful, and you're like, oh, what's happening? Oh, that's right, because the sleds come off the sleds come off the ground, and you're flying through the air. <laughs> like, wow. Sorry, but I remember the moment. Oh, what's happening? It's really quiet all of a sudden. Bang! Oh. <laughs> like, ah! It was very funny. So with all the injuries that you got on the athletics track, did you get any bad injuries Absolutely on the bobsled track? Nothing at all. <laughs> unbelievable. I know. And I really, exactly, <laughs> I really wanted something like some cool ice burn to show the grandkids because I don't think they'll ever believe. Well, yeah, it literally burns your skin. So you have this like cool, almost tattoo-like oh. mark. Nothing. But that's a big credit wow. to Astrid because she was such a good pilot. We only crashed two times in two and a half seasons. So she was pretty amazing. Wow. Unbelievable. Were you studying medicine at that time while you were still pursuing that? When did you start studying medicine and how did that come about? Obviously, you said before you alluded to it. It was a bit of a something you wanted to do since you kid. Yeah, exactly. How do you go from being Yana, the athletic star, they want you in bobsleigh, to then be like, hang on, I'm now going to pick up being a doctor and I'm going to pursue this? <laughs> um, it, so after losing London Olympics, I didn't feel like I had much else. Like, so I didn't have sport. I thought that's really the end of my athletics career. So I thought, all right, I'm going to tr- try two things. I'm going to try and find another sport and I'm going to try and see if I can get into medicine. So um, I thought I've got nothing to lose. Um, and so I applied for the medical entrance exam and failed it the first time actually. But that was kind of at a point where I'm like, I'm at a crossroads in life and I need to make some des- big decisions. So, and then the following year I applied again for medical school. And at that stage, I just started bobsled and both of them happened at the same time. So the plan was to make a decision, one or the other. <laughs> but I'm not mm-hmm. very good at making decisions. Typically, Anna. 
do both. <laughs> exactly. Yep. So I just thought, well, you know, and it actually works perfectly. Winter sport um, with our academic calendar works brilliantly because you actually compete when it's pretty much school holidays. So, you mm-hmm. know, you compete December, January, and then you come back and I'd only missed a couple of weeks of med school and then I went straight back in. So it was, it was actually really, um, worked really well. You were a single mother. You were doing both. Yep. <laughs> being med student and still Olympian, training all the time. How did you manage both? And I know that's not a question we're meant to ask, but I'm a mum and all <laughs> I ever want to know from other mums who have been successful is how, how? did you do it? Oh, 100%. Tell me how did you do it? <laughs> you have another, cr- another crush on my mother now because basically <laughs> I moved in with my parents for the first year and a half of med school. So yeah, um, yep. yeah. So Cornelius, my son, would have been about eight or nine at that point. And we just packed up because we were in Melbourne at the time, moved to Sydney because I knew I was going to be starting my degree there and initially moved in with mum and dad. So she cooked for me, cleaned for me, you know, did all all my washing, looked after my little guy. If I was at training, it was a beautiful life. Very, very, very Mm. conducive to success. Mm. Was there a point where it became too much trying to be the parent and the athlete and the med student? Was there a low point in there or what was probably the toughest point of trying to do all those things at one time? Uh, Not during the sport, because at that point I was clever enough to be, as I said, living with mum and dad. Um, It was actually once I retired completely from a sport, I thought, right, I need to be a big girl now and move out. And so um, I bought a house around the corner from my parents. I didn't exactly stray very far, literally 500 metres away. That's that's smart. That's not cheating, that's smart. (laughs) Exactly. And at that point I only had Cornelis, my son. And um, this kind of skips around a little bit, but I'd actually lost a few babies a few years before and had fundamentally decided I wouldn't have any more kids, that I'd become a doctor and hopefully a fertility specialist and and not have children. But I know, and I'm uh, probably many women listening to this, you get to your mid-30s and you're like this like weird clucky craving out of nowhere <laughs> just evolves and you're like, oh my gosh, this is, gr- this is horrendous. <laughs> yeah. But I was still very, very damaged from my marriage. And I got into a couple of relationships with some fantastic guys, like really great guys. And I just blew them up because I was just not able to commit well enough. And I did meet a really, really lovely guy. We, we accidentally fell pregnant and, and then made our relationship work and then we lost it. And that broke our relationship because he was so keen to be a dad and such a phenomenal person. It would have been a great dad. So I decided to do it on my own, which is have the kids by myself. So I spoke to mum about it. Um, I had a bit of a cervical um, cancer scare in there as well. So the time clock became a bit quicker. Um, I had a couple of great friends offer, um, went, initially thought of that plan, but then ended up deciding to use an anonymous donor just because I was honestly so afraid of having that extra person from a custody perspective and all that stuff that people, mm. that many of us have gone through again. So I, again, my superhero of a mother backed me to the tilt and we sat down and we picked the donor together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I fell pregnant. I, I took took two round, full rounds of IVF to get there. So I'm pretty lucky I started soon. And then my daughter Emily was born. And then a year and a half later, I did it again and had Jemima. But in that time, I didn't contemplate the financial side of having children on your own, having a mortgage, not being able to work because you're doing huge hours as a, as a doctor, as a, as a medical student, sorry. And just, you know, general life getting in the way. And there was definitely a pride about it. So I didn't ask for help till it was almost too late. And I, t- mm. I talk about this on SAS Australia, so I'm certainly not un- um, uncomfortable talking about it, but that was harder than losing the Olympics in Athens. It was the hardest point of my whole life when I was, I remember sitting on my floor in my bedroom and looking at my account and going, I cannot pay the mortgage next week. And I've, mm. and I've done this all to myself. It was my choice to have the girls by myself. It was my choice to do medical school. And it was, it looked as a long story of why it got to that point, but there was a an incident from a business that I had to pay back a bit of money from my divorce and things like that. And it just all came at once. And I went, I went from mm. having enough money in my account to get through the end to having nothing left. And it was 
it was, yeah, it was just, it was such a, it was such a, I don't know, horrifying moment Mm. (laughs) when you realise you've been too proud to ask for help and you've also completely buggered up. So, um, yeah, that was definitely the hardest part because it was, it was a, there was a point there where I think when I tried to sell my house, I put it on the market, it wouldn't sell. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to have to drop out of medical school and get a job. And then I just think, oh, all the, it was like fourth year medical school too. So I'd already done three and a half years and you just think, oh, this is horrendous. And I'm very lucky that I'm yeah, exactly. So close. And then you'd have Mm -hmm. a job, but yeah. So I'm very lucky that I had beautiful parents who I went, you know, basically crying my eyes out to saying, oh, this is what's happened. This is, you know, I've got a, this is due and I've got, what am I going to do? And then, you know, dad, just stepping up and saying, you're my daughter, don't ever think about it again. And then they stepped in and they helped me to the end. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. I love your parents. I know, I love them I don't too. even know them <laughs> and I love them. That's amazing. Like you you talk about you, you did that on your own with Jemima and Emily and you didn't know what was um, around the corner then in mid-30s, you had the cancer scare as well. So, I mean, time was, was ticking, but now you're happily married. <laughs> it's bizarre, isn't it? It's and bizarre how life changes so quickly. You're preg- you were pregnant again and then you've got another baby. I now. know. So you've got your four kids, yeah. which is incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. Just and incredible. <laughs> thank you, Sam. But And I, it, it all happened very quickly too. Like, um, you know, I met Paul and it was I'd only been a doctor for a couple of months, but and I just find, found stability at home and, you know, paying bills myself. Like, remember the, I, mean, I don't know whether you, but I remember the first <laughs> paycheck that came and I'm like, oh my God, it's my own money. Like, yay. <laughs> yeah. um, so, like, I'd obviously earned good money in sport, but it was, there's nothing quite like a, oh, re- a real paycheck. so you know? hard for this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very cool. Very, very cool. Um, but yeah, he's he's a real gentle soul, and um, it was very unexpected to trust someone. So um, you know, I guess I finally got to a point. I think medicine did that. Graduating medicine, I genuinely started going, getting a bit more confidence in myself, and realizing I had a lot to offer, um, mm-hmm. and 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 also having confidence because I already had my kids, so there was no need to meet someone else. And mm-hmm. I talk to a lot of women about this who are who have prioritized their career or just sadly not met the right person. I mentor quite a lot of women in this same circumstance around whether they want to take solo parentage or decide not to have children. It's one of the biggest decisions I'll ever make. It's one of the hardest decisions mm-hmm. I'll ever make. Yeah. But it gives us, I think, a lot of mums who do decide that pathway, we end up very empowered because you realise how capable you are as a person to do things. And then we end up meeting people quite often because we don't have, I don't know, somehow we've fallen in love with our kids and we feel enough already and therefore someone often lovely walks in their life and, you know, it's a, it's an, it's very interesting to watch watch that journey with a lot of them. Mm. Yeah. Um, how's your identity now? Because for so long, your identity was Yana the athlete. <laughs> Are you Yana the doctor now or is your identity still a little bit as an athlete? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're probably right. I still have, especially because I've done this TV show, obviously, so it's a lot of sport, a lot of talking about sport nice. again. So, mm. but yeah, no, genuinely when 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 I'm not doing media stuff, it's just, just medicine, and especially now that I'm getting strongly down the women's health side. So I'm doing a lot of advocacy for cervical cancer and infertility and things like that. So I, I love that. I love that chapter and that part of my life. But yeah, a bit of both. I think it's always a bit of both. Although um, actually, no, it, no, it really is more medicine because at least 60% of the time I look at my old career and think, is that really me or am I watching somebody else's life? Yeah, Especially right. Especially when I look in the mirror. <laughs> Postpartum body, it's great. <laughs> I know, yeah, absolutely. Um, but tell us as well, like, but what is it that you love the most about being a doctor? 
Uh, multiple things, you know. I mean, I genuinely love blood and bones, and you know, you know, <laughs> I love I love delivering babies. Like being there for that moment with a woman, there is nothing greater than seeing the yeah. joy on their face after the effort they've put in, and they've grown this little human for nine months. It's just the most glorious opportunity to, you know, be grateful for life. I also love the intensity of it. So, for example, I, I like emergency medicine, and I and I do like again again the birth unit where it can be quite intensive. Something's going wrong. I, I feel like I'm good in a, in a pressure situation. So therefore I feel like that gives me enough adrenaline in life that I don't chase it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that it makes no difference who I am as a person. Probably comes mm-hmm. a bit of my bit out of when I was a young athlete, because all that matters is how that woman or that man feels on the day. And if you've done the right job by them and, and help them, then that's what actually matters. It doesn't, I mean, don't get me wrong. We like a doctor who can talk or we always have conversations about medical people and <laughs> bedside matters and what, <laughs> uh, whatnot. But ultimately a person is, uh, people are, uh, will be happy with the journey they have with you if they get the outcome they're hoping for, or at least the best journey they can if their life is unable to be changed in that context. But it's just so, in all truth, it's just so rewarding. Mm, like it's just such I, a rewarding career. Mm. I, um, I've had two kids and I'm done having kids, but if I was having any more kids, I would want Yana Pittman as my obstetrician. Oh, you're so lovely. Well, you are a perfectionist. You're someone you can talk to and you're a perfectionist. So, and I just feel like birthing a child isn't easy at all and you're big in good hands as well. Um, You talk about chasing success and challenges and you obviously love those challenges. Does being a doctor and medicine now provide you with Majority of the time. Majority of the time. But yeah, is there, what's next for Yana? What does the future hold? And are you satisfied here? Does it provide you with those? I, on, I, yeah, satisfied, satisfied, yes, absolutely. I still think there's something big that I need to achieve. Now, I don't necessarily, it's not, I don't think it's on a personal front. I think it might be something in science or in medicine in terms of being involved in something bigger. Like I'm, I'm quite strongly involved in uterine transplant, which is where we take a uterus from someone who wow. no longer needs it and we transplant it into a, a woman who can't have children because she's either been born without a uterus or she's lost it for cervical cancer or hers just doesn't work. So we haven't yet started that surgery in Australia. It's happened internationally, wow. but that kind of thing drives me. So that the edge of medicine is definitely something I'm fascinated by and would love to be a part of. Um, I want to be a voice for women's health. You know, I want to mm. normalize incontinence and talk about infertility and miscarriages and cancer and and be able to put a voice so that women can there have therefore have their own in 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 things that they don't feel comfortable talking about. You know, I want to talk, I want to be open about how hard it is to have four kids and try and do medicine and you know that I'm not always the mum that I want to be because I'm trying to do both be successful mm-hmm. as a doctor and also be a great mum. And, and I want those conversations to be had more so that women can feel good about themselves and, and also accept that sometimes there are going to be days where she's not proud of how, what she did that day, but mm-hmm. that if she's, if she's genuinely making a difference for her family and for her life, then it's worth doing. So yeah. in that respect, I, I never wanted to do social media and I, I had really stayed away from you know even podcasts and things until the last couple of months when I realised I can be that, that person and, and, talk about things that others maybe won't be prepared to. And maybe the whole infamous part of me as a young person will allow me to be able to talk about things that others don't feel comfortable. And people go, oh, that's just Yana. <laughs> She's honest. She we talks about it. everything. <laughs> so, it's celebrated yeah, now. It is. We want that, especially yeah. through social media. We want yeah. to talk about the things and that people won't talk about because you're like, oh, that happens to me. It makes me feel so good. Yeah, that's normal. She pissed that's herself normal. too. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It's great. I need <laughs> so, to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> that's very cool. I love that. I love that. Do you feel, you know, that you talk about that childhood need to have people like you? Is that... 
Are you done with that, with everything that you've achieved no, in life? No, that's or is still that there. still quite haunts you? Yeah, it doesn't haunt me. I just accept it now. So I, I guess I've got to a point in my life where I look at all my flaws and I realise that they're not flaws. They're just who I am as a person. And a lot of the things, look, yes, I still love doing it. Every time I get a beautiful message from someone at the moment, I still reply and partly I reply because I'm so honoured that they took the time to write to me. And part of me thinks, well, yeah. you know, so that part of me is never going to change. That vulnerability of, of not being liked is part of who I am. And I just accept that's who it is. And don't get me wrong, I can I can logically talk about how that's not important to myself and say, well, you know, it doesn't matter as long as your kids and your family are happy. But it doesn't, it doesn't it doesn't hurt me anymore. It doesn't haunt me. I just realize that I am a really honest, really authentic person. And that's not always going to be what want people want to hear, but that that's more about them than it is about me. So yeah. and I'm comfortable with, you know, just being who I am now. And that took a long time to get there. I love that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and to finish off every podcast, we do ask what you would go back and tell your 11-year-old self or your 10-year-old self, your young self. <laughs> yeah. um, you've already alluded to, but if you could go back and talk to that little Yana, that 10, 11, 12-year-old Yana, what would you tell her? It's hard because I think you'd want to say, don't do this, don't do that. But then I think I wouldn't be who I am and where I am today without all the experiences that happen. So I think I'd just give her a hug and tell her she's beautiful and wonderful, which is exactly what I tell my little kids. I make, yeah. I make them tell themselves they're beautiful every day. So I have very yeah. confident young girls who think they're both gorgeous, intelligent superstars. <laughs> <laughs> and so they are. They are. So, yeah, I just I just want every kid to have the opportunities that I did, um, have the family that I did, you know, and I just hope they get to, the, get to a point in their lives where they can look in the mirror and be proud of who they are as early as possible. I love that. Yana, thank you so much for joining me My on the game. Thanks, I've Sam. loved every minute of this chat. Thank you. Thanks, Yana. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Nikki Sitch, executive producer, Jennifer Goddard. Listener.